Hello and welcome to Money's Alchemy. Uh, I'm Asfi. Uh, I my actual name is Isfandiyar Shaheen, but uh, I go by Asfi. And uh, this is uh, this is the very very first show um, uh, that uh, that we're calling um, uh, Money's Money's Alchemy. And um, I want to start uh, talking to you uh, with uh, just with the show's name you know what this what this show is about and you know why why uh, why alchemy and, and i love this story um that uh, isaac newton discovered principles of chemistry um through alchemy today we know alchemy is a flawed concept because you cannot uh, convert uh, uh, you know you can't do magic uh, magical stuff and just convert some metals into go- into gold because gold is an element but this wasn't obvious um uh, many uh, i would say uh, centuries ago and um you know uh, the other uh, part that we quite like i mean if you're familiar with this mean uh, you know uh, beep around and find out uh, we quite like that too and um, and 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 hence the term uh, money's alchemy because uh, what at least my sort of re-entry or into this world of money, a lot of it has happened as a result of taking an interest in 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 cryptocurrencies and stable coins. So, what this show is about, I, it's I think this this quote from Friedrich Hayek captures um, what this show is about beautifully. That the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men and women how little they really know and what they can imagine. And um, I've been a sort of practitioner of finance my whole career. And last six, seven months have really, it's hit me that, wow, I know so little. Um, and um, uh, and that's something that I've been, that I've been wanting to fix. So what specifically, what is this show about? I, it's for me, it's the, it's, it's this intersection of, monetary theory, financial history, and stablecoin design. I, I, the simpler way is to like, it's digging the money system rabbit hole. We want to ask questions like, you know, what are the conflicting theories about the origin of money and, and why do they matter? Um, how did our monetary system evolve? And what can we learn from speculative manias of days past? And what are these different mechanisms that people are experimenting with, playing around with, in the world of cryptocurrencies, what what insights can we glean from that? So, um, I'm Asfi. Uh, I'm um, uh, I'm founder and CEO at uh, at, at Wagme Labs. Oh, sorry, at Stablecoin Labs. We've renamed the company. Um, and and what we do, uh, what we are doing with this company is we're we're creating interactive educational com- uh, content uh, to to try and understand uh, how our money system works. And the theme I want to um, explore in this first show is um, is on monetary constitutions and, and, and why they matter. And there are, um, I've been very fortunate uh, with this company that I stumbled upon, my, my current company, Stablecoin Labs, where I'm a founder. But um, as a result of that company, I met some really wonderful people. And um, one of them, uh, uh, who will be my guest on the second episode, uh, Manny Rincon Cruz, he mentioned these two books. Uh, one is a, a series of essays published in 1962 uh, called In Search of a Monetary Constitution. And then there's an, an, an updated edition of that published in 2015 called Renewing the Search of a Monetary Con- for a Monetary Constitution. And and their their perspectives. And what's really 
fascinating reading these essays is just how divergent uh, these perspectives are. As to why this matters, why does a monetary constitution matter? I love this um, quote from uh, Professor Lawrence White. It, this is, you know, in the, he's, he's written the introduction and his Twitter bio says that he's been studying private currencies uh, before they became cool. And so his big point, and you know, I'll read out this quote. He says, in, you know, in the past 50 years, central banks have uh, delivered neither reliably sound money, but instead chronic inflation, peaking in the great inflation of the 60s to early 80s, nor smoother real growth. And so it's this it's this criticism of uh, of central banking that that I think is at the heart of conversations around finding a monetary constitution. Now, what for me, you know, what has changed about the world today, and 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 just why are stable coins a big deal? What's different about today? From my vantage point, we never had these two capabilities: this trustless digital scarcity that. Bitcoin demonstrated and these programmable blockchains that Ethereum demonstrated. These are very new capabilities. And what they've done is they've essentially made the cost of launching a monetary experiment zero. And what I'm showing you, while there are lots of dollar coins that you're probably familiar with, all everything you're seeing right now on your screen these are floating um, currencies and you know you can get into debate about you know is, uh, is it right to call it a currency or should you call it uh, you know is it is it a form of credit but leaving that part aside everything you see on your screen is, is a floating currency that it's attempting you know uh, an independent it's attempting to implement an Im independent monetary policy and I won't get into whether their designs make sense or not that's that's top those are topics for another time but the fact that, the, that that we now have the ability to do experimentation, hence the term money's alchemy, that is what is very new about the world today. And I think that the benefit I see in studying theory and history is that, you know, even for the practitioners, even for the so-called, uh, you know, DeFi degens or people who are like really into their cryptocurrencies and stable coins, I think there's a bunch to learn by just reflecting on, 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 on history. And I, um, for me, I, uh, very recently, uh, I, I reread um, the denationalization of money by, by Friedrich Hayek. And in that book, um, these are, I mean, I've, uh, you know, the, so if you're curious about where I'm getting this, the slides are in the show notes. And, and this is hyperlinked over there. You know, Friedrich Hayek does a thought experiment where he describes something called the ducat, uh, which is a floating currency that is nominally backed by, by fiat currency. And, um, you know, just very briefly, um, here's, uh, here's how it works. That ducat is issued, he describes a ducat as, as issued by a private bank as a redeemable currency that is nominally backed by government currency. And uh, the issuer of the ducat announces intent to curtail supply. And just this announcement, uh, Hayek speculates, cre will, would create a monetary premium. We've seen things like that play out in the recent past in, in the funky world of crypto. And, and what Hayek is kind of getting at with, with this uh, design for the ducat is saying, uh, he wants to see a commodity-backed currency that maintains purchasing power. So he's saying, hey, you know, if we could have like a basket of commodities that we could track, then, you know, uh, the way the this so-called private bank would regulate money supply is essentially 
that if the market price of the ducat were to go above the desired purchasing power, that then they would increase supply in order to bring the price of ducat down and do the opposite if the market price of ducat went below the purchasing power, that is use the uh, fiat currency lying in their, uh, in their reserves uh, to buy back and reduce supply. Um, for me, um, Ducat is super fascinating uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I don't, um, I don't see it existing uh, in, uh, in this world of crypto. And I kind of wonder that, you know, what would it take to launch something like that? And then, and that's kind of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the questions I've been asking myself. Today, we have a really, uh, really uh, amazing guest uh, with us. Uh, I'm I'm thrilled to uh, share that, uh, you know, someone whose work I've been following, whose videos I've been watching, uh, he's, he's, he's become very well known in the, in the recent past. Um, Jeffrey Snyder um, is uh, creator of uh, Bureau Dollar University. Uh, he publishes a wonderful video every day where he talks about uh, uh, the euro dollar market and why that euro dollar market is so important and uh, I've gotten to know him a bit uh, as of late and uh, it gives me great pleasure to to welcome uh, Jeff Snyder uh, Jeffrey thank you Jeff thank you so much uh, for for joining us in this in this very first discussion I'm really grateful that you're here well, I'm honored that you asked me, Asfi. I, I think this is terrific. More people talk about the deep monetary fundamentals theory, all that kind of stuff. Get down the rabbit hole. I'm happy to throw my fictive two cents into there uh, as well. Your uh, two cents are, I think, I think your two cents are worth a lot. Uh, and, uh, you know, something we often, uh, those of us who follow you, uh, there's a bunch you have, I know people virtually who are like your followers there, but also always quite taken by, you know, like uh, the humility uh, with which you interact. So we're, we're really grateful for that. Um, Jeff, I want to start. Um, so um, Jeff and I are, um, my, you know, are, 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 partially involved in a in a in a stablecoin project or a cryptocurrency project called eco where we're trustees and in his um, application or in his sort of introduction um, Jeff said something that I've that I've read and reread uh, a few times and and he said that we have here the potential for getting money right for the first time in a very very long time the fruits of success aren't just incalculable, they are demanded. Um, that's where I want to start today, Jeff. Can you please elaborate on that? What, what did you mean? What were you thinking when you, when you typed that? Well, elaborating on that statement means everything. <laughs> it's like, that's the whole encompassing topic of money from the very beginning. I think what you know what it's referencing is the shared idea that a lot of us have, and maybe the general public does too, that something's not right. Mm -hmm. We may not know what it is, but we can understand, we can feel it, and something you know, dang it, something changed in our lifetime. And I don't, I, I, I can just tell it. It has to do with the monetary. It's finance. It's something. So everybody has this vague sense that. It's not really going well. I think it has to do with the monetary system. I don't really have a whole lot of answers. So there's our opportunity. Our opportunity is to identify what's wrong, to identify the ways to fix it, at least the ways we think we can fix it. And as you were saying, I loved your presentation, Aspie. 
because you're saying, you know, what you're saying is that we have the opportunity now to do things that we never could before, including experimentation. The very idea of experimenting on money, nobody would have ever thought of that, you know, not that long ago. But that's what cryptocurrencies have done. Bitcoin has opened the door. Ethereum allowed the you know, proliferation of capabilities. And now we have in our hands the possibility of experimenting. Because let's face it, we don't really know what we're doing here. <laughs> it really is an experiment because the way we did things before doesn't seem to apply itself very well to the world in which we're transitioning to. I always talk about the you know money in its modern format uh, looks a lot like a computer or telecommunications network because it really is. But isn't it weird how money is sort of the last bastion of the old way of doing things to get to get with the 21st century and become digitized? And the reason is because of your alchemy. You know, um, talking about we don't. I mean, monetary scholarship in a way has been left by the wayside to begin with. But really, it's it's. We don't even really know what we don't know anymore. It, it, there's su there's such a huge area wor that's worth exploring that hasn't been explored. And when we start doing it, we're going to find out a lot of things that we probably didn't know before, which will become applicable as we experiment and move toward what we hope would be a much better way of doing this. Doing this Because getting back to my original point, we all know, we all we can all feel that there's something wrong here. Yeah, I, I mean, man, I uh, I grew up in Pakistan, right? So my um, born and raised in Pakistan and, did, you know, now I live in San Francisco, but I did a lot of business in Pakistan too. And, you know, we've always seen it from the, from the, I would say, what some people call the global south or I would call it developing countries. You know, when we look at the dollar system from that other lens, it's a, it's a very different perspective. And, and yeah, something is very, very wrong. Like my, you know, a lot of, I mean, it's for me, it saddens me that, you know, people in my country are currently, yeah, you know, my countries are kind of on the verge of default and there's people come up with all kinds of explanations, right? Like as to why this happens. But one of it is, well, we have a dollar shortage, which is something you talk about a lot. Uh, and now, you know, I mean, probably five days from now, the Fed is going to do another 25 basis points. Probably, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I'll come back to that, your, your views on that. But the tightening that has happened already, um, you know, there's a, there's a much more, I would say, pronounced impact that is happening on developing countries. So, yeah, I uh, I agree. One other thing that comes up for me when I think about like money today is, you know, chemistry is one thing that we've talked about, right? Medicine is another interesting example. Like 200 years ago, um, majority of the doctors were quacks, right? Because they didn't have um, the ability, they didn't have labs. They couldn't, they couldn't really rely on the scientific method. And so, you know, and, and, and again, I don't want to say like economists or leading economists or central bankers are quacks, but like we've not had. I'll like... say that. If you don't want to say it, I'll say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but I think. But that, know, no, that's, a, that's a really good point because, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Thomas Kuhn, who came up with the term paradigm shift. And the re he wrote this book called uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolution. Yeah. And what he did was he looked back at Aristotle. Now, we all think of Aristotle. We're taught to believe Aristotle is this really brilliant guy. Who, this, who is this, this guy? guy that stands I, wait, wait, head, wait. head and shoulders over everybody else in the ancient world. But when Kuhn looked back on Aristotle's work, he said, this guy must be an idiot. 
because pretty much everything that he said was wrong. And the reason he was wrong wasn't because he was an idiot, obviously. Obviously, Aristotle's a very bright guy, was because they hadn't advanced enough to understand the world that was around them. So when I look at central bankers and I look at most monetary commentary, they're like Aristotle or the old quacks that you're talking about, doctors who just haven't gotten, they haven't, they haven't learned enough about the way the monetary system actually works today to be to offer anything useful. And for me, that starts with understanding that central bankers don't matter as much as people make them. Uh, the monetary system is very different than what you're taught in textbooks. We're taught an Aristotelian version of money when we're already way past that. We're into the digital age and have been in the digital age for, you know, almost 75 years. Jeff, this brings me to, by the way, before I get to my second big question, uh, Kuhn, paradigm shift. Who can you name the guy again so I can look it up? I, Dr. I Thomas to... Kuhn. Thomas Kuhn. It's K U H N. Yeah. Um, I think it should come. I mean, if you Google search, he's the guy who coined the term paradigm shift for yeah. this reason. The idea yeah. that science doesn't go incrementally, right? As you were saying, the alchemy, Isaac Newton, uh, there's, there's very little progress. It, leads to, it reaches a settled state. For a very long time, people agree this is the way the world works, even though they know uh, we're missing stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> This yeah. can't be because we're always wrong. And then somebody or some things or some groups come along. They make the right, just the right kind of, of innovation, the right kind of experimentation, reach the right kind of conclusions. And then we all, the paradigm shifts and we all realize what a bunch of idiots we were. You know, everybody, the way everybody talked about things yesterday, that was so stupid. Now we, now we understand the truth. And that's really where we are with money. And I think that's really where cryptocurrencies and digital currencies can be a huge help is bringing us forward because monetary scholarship is practically medieval right now. <laughs> uh, well, okay. I mean, I'm kind of at the stage in the journey currently where I'm like digging into a lot of monetary scholarship and, and kind of enjoying it. Like that, those two books, uh, In Search of a Monetary Constitution and Renewing the Search of a Monetary Constitution. Like I loved um, James Buchanan's essay on predictability as a criteria for a monetary constitution. Uh, and I mean, what I struggle with is how wordy they are. Uh, I also, <laughs> What I struggle with is, you know, how there, it does feel like a there, there is a sense of elitism that I get when I, as in the language used is like, it's not, it's not the common language. It's a, it's, you know, it's a very, I would say academic language and because they are academics and, you know, and so there's, there's been this, there's, there's a bit of an, there's definitely an ivory tower issue, but I, I'm finding it supremely beneficial. Like I had this thought um, some time ago that like, you know, that like 93 people who got the Nobel prize in economics, I don't know what all of them said. I'd at least like to, you know, kind of know, <laughs> have a rough sense of what they said. But on that point, Jeff, like, I, I mean, I've, um, I, I, I love your perspective as a practitioner, but I mean, you, I want to, we want to learn, like, who are your intellectual fathers or mothers? Like, you know, people you, whose work you've read and you say, yes, my thinking was shaped by these authors and these thinkers. Well, what, a couple of my favorites, uh, one is a Nobel Prize. Well, they're both are actually, actually all three. Um, Ronald Coase is a guy. I love Ronald Coase, especially since in his, his Nobel speech, he basically said economists don't know what the hell they're talking about. I mean, that's the kind of guy that I like. Um, you know, 
economics moved into econometrics, which means economists spend all their time in statistical equations and regressions and models and things like that. And they've lost touch with the real world, just as you're saying. I mean, that's one of the reasons why when economists talk, you can't understand what they're saying. They're talking about heteroscedasticity or something, you know, some some statistical concept when they should be talking about why can't Pakistan get enough dollars so that it import fuel? Why did Sri Lanka collapse? Sri Lanka collapsed because it didn't have dollars. Why aren't they talking about that? And the reason is because they don't know what the hell they're talking about. So that was Ronald Coase was a guy who, who basically told people, not only is it okay to be skeptical, he went right into the lion's den, right to, in his Nobel Prize speech and told the economists, you guys don't know what the hell you're talking about. So I think that's the approach that a lot of digital currency and cryptocurrency people already bring to the table, sort of that healthy skepticism of, for lack of a better term, the establishment. Uh, and so, yeah, let's have these monetary discussions on a layperson's, uh, in a layperson's language and do it in a way that we can all understand, because I agree with you. Monetary systems should be predictable. And part of predictability means, in some way, simplicity. They shouldn't be this complicated stuff that only that only the priests in the temple are allowed to do. Monetary rules to be the most efficient tool of a monetary system, everybody should know intuitively what the rules of the game are when we're all participating in it. To the point where you don't even give money a second thought. We had thought we had achieved that, but we really didn't. And part of the reason we thought that we achieved that and realized we didn't is the other guy I looked to was Milton Friedman. Now I have a I have a love-hate relationship with Friedman because a lot of things that he did, including positive economics, which led to this, this detour in a, to econometrics, it just makes me cringe. It makes me shake my head. But you understand what he was saying. What he was really saying is we need to develop rules where we can evaluate evidence in a very complex social science setting. But unfortunately, it went way too far. And now all we care about is these statistical equations and everything econometrics. But his other his monetary scholarship, including the, the seminal work of monetary history, which I keep by my desk all the time, and it, you can see it's it's dug apart. This is the way. Wait, what 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 is that? Uh, what's the name of that book? Uh, what what is that? It's a monetary history of the United States. Okay, awesome. I guess so we're reading that too. Yeah, that's that's the. I mean. What he basically did was he wrote a roadmap to understanding monetary research. What he said was basically, go back into the primary source material. See what people were talking about as things were unfolding. See what the statistics were back when people didn't really know how to keep statistics. You can, get, you can uncover a lot of information from primary source material and then put it together in a comprehensive way where we can explain all the facts, not just one or two facts and remain Aristotle, but explain all the facts and take a genuine leap forward. So Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, while I don't agree with a lot of the things they said, even some of the things in the book, I think they went about monetary thinking and theory in exactly the right way. And I think that's a good, it's a, it's a good aid for people who are interested in the, in the, in this area about how to think about what do we, just how to how to compartmentalize all of these issues and what what we're what we're really confronted with, which is in this case, I mean, it's it, there's so much information asymmetry, which is a term I use all the time because that's the primary problem, and it gets back to what you're you know what you're talking about. Ask for you is about you know, predictability and simplicity, which kind of it doesn't always eliminate in, in, in information asymmetry, but it eliminates enough of it that it becomes 
uh, a, a solution, an effective solution becomes more realistic. So there's a lot we can learn from them about skepticism, monetary thinking and scholarship and theory and practice. That's the other thing. Everything sounds great in, on, the, in, on the chalkboard in the classroom, but when, you, when the rubber meets the road of actual practice, it often goes sideways really quickly. And the problem, I mean, I think this gets into a, the, la the larger discussion here is people become very dogmatic about money. It takes on almost a religious undercurrent when it really shouldn't. We should approach this as objective, dispassionate scientists. We should evaluate the evidence and come to rational conclusion when money is, is a very emotional topic that it often gets into, like I said, some, some more religious type discussions, which is, again, unhelpful. So you could do worse than, you know, Milton Friedman, at least trying to, what does a monetary scientist look like? What does he sound like? That's really what, what uh, caught my attention. I, I I love that. I mean, I just wanna I wanna. There's a lot you said, but I wanna just you know briefly show something to uh, to listeners or to viewers. You know, th this is um, this is an excerpt from um, uh, Leland B. Yeager's introduction in In Search of a Monetary Constitution, and he's got like 15 to 20 economists who are like giving their view on what a monetary constitution should be. And this really stood out for me. He says the views represented here show an almost perplexing diversity. They range from, I'm not going to read it all out, but it's like there are some people who are like, oh, you know, 100% reserve banking, gold standard only, uh, complete rules, no rules. Rules are bad. Discretion is good. And, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's uh, I, yeah, anyway, I just wanted to, um, uh, I wanted to put that uh, out there real quick. But um, I love that you started with Ronald Coase. Um, he's, uh, I would say, probably my the first, uh, someone whose work really resonated with me uh, because um, for two, for not interestingly for money reasons, uh, but for thinking about how organizations evolve uh, because yeah. the whole work on transaction cost theory, at least the way I understood it was that, you know, he said that, you know, why do firms exist? Firms exist because they can minimize transaction costs in organizing a certain activity. And so his one of the implications that I found really interesting was, which is which really spells out that when transaction costs of doing something in-house versus out outside becomes equal, firms will choose to outsource. And so he, uh, you know, sort of describes this world, this very flat world, but which didn't play out. But then, you know, uh, his student, Oliver Williamson, who also got the Nobel, uh, for asking uh, a, a deeper question, uh, taking Coase's work, which was like, what's the role of authority inside a firm? And and he ends up saying, and I'll tie it to like our discussion in just a minute, but Oliver Williamson's work was saying, um, when markets cannot coordinate uh, an activity inside a firm, authority steps in. And that's what a manager is. And um, and it's 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 I think that lens applying the same lens, uh, you know, of transaction cost theory to the process of money management, because, I mean, we have these we've had to outsource, uh, uh, you know, monetary policy to these authorities because we've not quite figured out how uh, markets can uh, coordinate that activity or at least. I mean, at least like that's 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 sort of one uh, one piece of it. The other thing I want to just share that at least for me, like as a as someone who's like just relearning, I've really benefited a great deal from just zooming in on the accounting 
you're talking about the source materials, right? Like, uh, and that's one thing I do like about, um, you know, uh, Perry Merling's money view where that, you know, he zooms in on the accounting, like just think about the financial accounting that is happening, you know, when a euro dollar is created or like the financial accounting that is happening, you know, when, uh, when uh, uh, reserves are increased and then, uh, you know, credit is created. Uh, so, so just wanted to, um, just wanted to touch upon that, but, but this kind of now gets us into, you know, like a, like a bigger segue, right? Like you've been quite critical, uh, of the economists, you've been quite critical of the fed. So I'm going to put you a bit on the spot here with the next question, uh, because I, um, I've, I've heard your criticism, but I want to know, like, if if Jeff was the economic czar, if Jeff was Jay Powell, <laughs> what would you do differently? Like, if you had, if you had, uh, and let's say there are no governors and you're the Fed god, <laughs> you know, and uh, when we're waiting for, like, you know, Jan 31st for Jeff to come up and say, here's what I'm going to do with monetary policy now. What would you do? Why would you do it? This is going to be a very long answer. So please take all the time because, uh, yeah, we want to understand what would Jeff Snyder do if he was our economic czar? Well, the first task is to get people to stop paying so much attention to the Fed. (laughs) So that would be the first thing to say, look, the Federal Reserve is not what you think it is. And you can see this. You can observe this already. You don't need me to say that. I mean, why does the Fed pay so much attention to the unemployment rate and the CPI? Um, any legitimate central bank in a Walter Badgett type of, of mold would pay attention to the monetary system because there's so much information and money. As you talked about in your in your opening here, we look at money. If it deviates from any objective uh, goal, we know it's we know it's wrong. And the reason the answer is because the Fed doesn't do money. It's not really a central bank. It's a manipulator of psychology. And so the first role of the Fed, my Fed, assuming anybody would be crazy enough to get put me in that position would be to get people to realize the monetary creation, intermediation, all these essential functions that happen as a reserve currency are undertaken by a global bank cartel, which changes things enormously. And so once people become aware of where money comes from and how it actually transacts and what's supposed to go on with it, then we can start thinking about how do we improve the system? Um, Really, there's two big issues here. One is money creation and the other is intermediation. Because in any sophisticated monetary system, what's going to happen, you could start out as egalitarian as you want. Everybody has the same amount of money. But over a very short period of time, eventually, money's going to start to pool in a fewer and fewer hands. That's just the nature of success. We want this to happen. We want successful people with good ideas and good execution to accumulate money because that means they're being successful, which then leads us into the whole process of financialization, which means if too much money gets pooled into too few hands, there's not enough money left for the real economy to undertake the level of commerce and transactions that we want. And so the the entire purpose, the entire ideal purpose of a central bank is to ensure that the circulation between pools of funds and legitimate uses continues in a most efficient and effective manner. Now I'm using these words, which are complete ideal words, like what is legitimate demand for money? Well, I mean, exact. that's an messy, enormously complicated question. What is, you know, the most efficient way for distribution? I mean, I can't say that. The Fed can't say that. And I think it's foolish to even believe that there's any sort of top-down structure that could do, as you talked about before, Ronald Coase and his students' theories. 
Authority only comes in in the absence of useful knowledge and useful practice. So the idea would be to have as much effective redistribution, enough effective distribution of money to maintain maximum efficiency in the glow in the economy, which means money creation and intermediation. And the problem in the euro dollar system was that it combined those two functions, which history always shows. If you give intermediators the ability to create their own money, they're going to stop intermediating and start just creating money. <laughs> it ends up going astray. Which is but what then, they've done. Which is exactly. what they've done. And that's, that's where subprime mortgages came from. The 2008 crisis was not really about subprime mortgages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was the symptom of this combined function, which essentially bastardized the entire process. And then, of course, in the post-crisis era, the pendulum swings the other way. Because now we don't want to create any money because everything's viewed at risk as, as risky. So we still have no intermediation, but for the exact opposite reason. So the first task of the Federal Reserve would to be to be an actual central bank would be to, to separate the intermediation function, which distributes money throughout the economy from those who have pools of it to those who have legitimate need for it. And to separate that from the money creation function, which, by the way, is not the Federal Reserve. Money is created by banks, commercial banks, not the Federal Reserve. So the Fed's job is simply to make sure that as the money is circulating, that it keeps circulating, that it doesn't go out of tolerances in either direction. We don't want too much money circulating because that becomes inflation. We don't want too little money circulating because that becomes a deflationary, disinflationary drag that especially harms the labor force. Labor is usually the, 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 primary, the primary victim of deflationary money. So again, these are all ideals. These are all, these are all incredibly difficult to even think about in terms of practice. But in very general terms, that's the goal here. So to get the monetary system back on track where it's in these defined tolerances, or at least these loose tolerances, to make sure money circulation is at least sufficient to get us back into an efficient, growing economic system. Awesome. I wanna uh, for uh, for people tuning in. I mean, there's we've we've gone into like uh, advanced mode rather quickly, but I wanna I wanna show you something that's just illustrating uh, uh, illustrating Jeff's point. Um, I need to wait. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So. Um, this, yeah, if you can see this, what you're seeing is that um, around 2008, uh, you're seeing an increase in the monetary base, which are reserves. And so if you're not familiar with that, like reserves are something, it's a, it's a type, it's a special type of money that only the Federal Reserve can create. It's like, think of it as the base money. And then that only commercial banks can hold, mind you. You can't, me and you cannot hold reserves. What we have are deposits. And so... Um, when banks' money ends up getting created, money supply increases when, and there's obviously a relationship, the more the reserves, you know, there will be more deposits. But, but, but that's the part that, uh, that I just wanted to emphasize that, uh, that Jeff was uh, highlighting here. And, you know, there's a, there's a lovely term I heard recently. I'm not sure who was it. And, and they were like, uh, they said that, you know, it's a monetary policy today feels, or at least, some of the rate changes today feels a bit like pushing on a string. Yeah, uh, it's Paul Krugman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And that's not it at all. No, see, I, I disagree with that entirely. Okay, say that. Say more about the, that. The correlation between bank reserves and any economic or real economy or real market uh, aggregate or result is zero. There's very little correlation at all. Um, but, and the reason is because that, bank that, reserves that, don't really that I struggle with. That I struggle behavior. with. I'd struggle with that, Jeff. Like, as in, like, I mean, if I'm a bank, if I'm a profit-seeking bank, uh, you know, and I know I can, I need to maintain a reserve ratio of, like, 10%, and all of a sudden, I end up with more reserves, like, you know, why am I not lending? I mean, uh, no, like... Because you're thinking about it in two dimensions. I I don't mean to sound like that, but this is the problem that Paul Volcker had in the 1970s. Everybody think Paul Volcker conquered inflation in this, through this method. That's not what happened at all. In fact, all you got to do is read the transcripts from the, that era, the FOMC transcripts, and you can see they realized they were outgunned by the banking system. So what mm-hmm. happened? Okay, this is why reserves don't matter. Mm-hmm. You have a reserve system where the government says you have to require, you have to require, you have to hold a minimum level of lawful reserves, either cash in a vault or on account with the Federal Reserve. And if you're trying to reduce the level of bank credit in the economy because you believe out-of-control bank credit is what's leading to inflation, which it was, by the way. Banks were creating money and credit, which was creating bank inflation. So the idea was that they would make these reserves more expensive by restricting the quantity. But that didn't have the effect that they thought it would, because what banks could do in the euro-dollar era was simply not create deposits. They could They could take customer accounts, customer deposits, move them to a money market fund, and then borrow the funds back from the money market fund. So as you said, Asfi, accounting is more important here than almost everything else. So what a bank has done is essentially its liability, level of liabilities has been exactly the same. But it's changed a chunk of it from deposit liabilities, which create a reserve requirement, into an interbank wholesale loan, which has no reserve requirement. So the Fed says, we're restricting reserves, making the cost of reserves more expensive. And the banks say, well, I'm just going to shift more of my liabilities to money market funds and borrow it back in wholesale markets. That is what has delinked monetary, the reserves from the monetary system. And this is just one way. I mean, there's all sorts of other ways, including derivative contracts, currency swaps and the like, where you can circumvent any reserve requirement or any use of reserves entirely. Ask yourself this question. This is the question I ask people all the time. Did you know before the Lehman Brothers, the level of bank reserves in the United States of the Federal Reserve was practically nothing? We had this amount, zero bank reserves. Yet, how can we have this almost nothing in bank reserves? And yet that was the period where so we had so much massive monetary expansion. We had credit bubbles all over the world. It didn't come from the Fed. It didn't come from the Fed's bank reserves because banks created their own system of liquidity that didn't run on what the Fed offered. So the Fed offered this antiquated notion of reserves and lawful reserve requirements when the banking system took huge leaps in an opposite direction. Wholesale money, external money, regulatory shopping, all sorts of things where liquidity was no longer tied to what the Federal Reserve did. And then at, at 2008, when, the, when that system finally broke down because it was inherently unstable and flawed, the Fed tried to come back in with these bank reserves and the banks were like, these are useless. They don't help us with the forms of liquidity that we use, including the, the biggest one of all is collateral. Collateral is its own type of currency. It is a far more useful currency than the bank reserves the Federal Reserve creates. 
And if you have a shortage of good quality collateral that's usable in these wholesale markets, it doesn't matter the quantity of bank reserves. And that's why no matter what the Federal Reserve did in 2007, 2008, 2009, it had no effect. We had a, the worst monetary crisis since the Great Depression, even though the Fed expanded its balance sheet, created this abundant reserve doctrine. How do you, how do you reconcile that with the worst monetary panic across the world in four generations? The only way you can explain all the facts is to realize bank reserves don't have a don't have much of a place, let alone a primary place in the monetary system that actually exists outside of the theories and, and textbooks that we all use. Fascinating. But, but on the zooming in a bit on the uh, 2008 crisis, uh, I mean, would you still agree that like the moment they were willing to take mortgage backed securities on their own balance sheet, that that, that created a big difference? As in, I mean, so, so, I mean, because the, because. Well, I guess this is something, well, I want to zoom in a bit more on this then, right? Because um, at least, and again, some of this, a lot of this is coming from the work of Perry Merling, who says that, you know, we, that, that in his view, the central bank's role is changing from being a lender of last resort because they're not central banks. Dealer, to becoming a dealer of last resort. Right. And which so, is a that, very different scenario. That's exactly what broke down in March of 2020, too, by the way. We don't right. have a functioning central bank because the central banks don't do money. So it wasn't their buying of mortgage-backed securities in 2009. It was the end of mark-to-market accounting, which was creating all sorts of paper losses, which was, which was, re was forcing a revaluation of collateral on the system that could not handle that revaluation. And once they stopped the mark-to-market accounting, which I know people get all up in arms about, that's another emotional issue, that ended the threat to banks holding those various securities because they no longer had to mark to an illiquid market. Everything comes back to the lack of money supply and elasticity in the euro dollar system, the system that is designed and governed and maintained by this global banking cartel. The Federal Reserve over the, the 40 years, well, it wasn't 40, 30 years since Volcker to 2008 approximately, simply pretended to be a central bank. I mean, think about how ridiculous this is. Alan Greenspan said he could control this vast monetary system by nothing more than targeting the federal funds rate. How right. does that even work? <clears throat> it doesn't. It only works if we all believe it works. And the funny thing is, belief doesn't work when you have a real monetary problem. So we'll come back. A lot of what I want to bring you back. I want to bring you is based on essentially what everybody says. Mm. Mm. I want to bring you back to that. The but as in, I want to bring you back to the point about like, as in, is it useful to imagine a central bank as a as a dealer? Like, as in, like you know, as in for you, like when you're, you know, I, I mean, you know, like you know, like again, like is is this framing helpful for you as a thinker? That like you know, we and we do get like that you know the that the you know, the, uh, the, the Walter Badgett view of like, you know, lend freely at high rates against really good self-liquidating collateral. I'm, I'm messing up the paraphrasing, but that's kind of like one of it. No, that's it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the idea. To, 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 to now being like, you know, um, uh, I guess insured freely at high premiums. As in, if you think about the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the Fed essentially kind of created a certain floor, like they basically became AIG. Right, like uh, in some ways, like you know, the the um, uh, the credit default. Yeah, but they, see, they didn't. They wanted no, they you to believe them on their they did, though, but no? they actually didn't. 
say more about that. Help us understand that because they took them on their balance sheet. And so they took the assets that were already written on their balance sheet, but they didn't become AIG. They right, didn't start right. writing credit default swaps, which was what we, if you really get into the modern monetary and how the how this ledger money works in the global cartel, credit default swaps were enormously important because it allowed banks to manage their balance sheets outside mm -hmm. of this reserve paradigm. And so once AIGs faltered, that meant that the, everybody's balance sheet became far more capital restrictive, which meant that the Fed taking on old credit default swaps onto its balance sheet through the maiden lane uh, hedge funds didn't solve the problem, which was we needed more credit default swaps. We needed a better guarantor to write new default swaps so that banks could maintain the amount of capital, capital freedom, for lack of a better term. They actually called it regulatory capital arbitrage, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. That's what the credit default swaps were actually used for. So the Fed, all it did was try to bail out AIG, but it didn't become AIG. Right. No, I, I, yeah. No, I, 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 that, that was me. I didn't speak clearly over there, but I, but okay. I understand that. This brings us to the last big topic. Yeah. Like as in the devilishly difficult topic of, you know, because, you know, I mean, I also try to empathize with the Fed, right? Like as in, you know, you're given this <laughs> massive responsibility, right? Like, and everyone's kind of looking at every word that you're saying, right? And this yeah, world is changing. Esvi, that's, that's part of the ritual. We're, we're, and when you don't do money, when you're not a budget type central bank, you have to maintain this a reputation and, and this reputation and this mm. air of legitimacy. Mm. And part of that is like a religion. You have to go through all these rituals where we pretend that every word that comes out of Jay Powell's mouth is the most important thing that's said mm. ever. And when you realize that that's just not true, it, it just doesn't. It's, it's, in the absence of actual monetary competency, they've created this image. It's almost like the Wizard of Oz, where you have this floating head with all the fire shooting up all around to make all that, to make the impression that the wizard is actually a wizard when he's really the stupid old guy in the corner behind the shabby curtain. And all you got to do is look at the actual stuff, the actual history. Look at what happened in 2008 and look at what happened ever since then. Read the, read the monetary scholarship that's produced by these, these central bankers themselves about quantitative easing. It doesn't work. Just pull back the curtain a little bit and you see the guy over there in the corner and you realize, oh, they're not a central bank and that has enormous consequences. So the idea that we have to pretend that every time Jay Powell gets in front of the microphone, it's the most important thing is part of their non-money monetary policy. In fact, it is the only thing they have at their disposal. But I mean, would you agree that Fed increasing the federal funds rate is decreasing liquidity in the world and nope. increasing the dollar shortage? Oh, nope. interesting. Okay. I didn't quite catch that part either. Like that's a pretty big one. So, First so of all, historically, Fed... historically speaking, we get the interest rates backwards. Um, yields in particular. There's See, the thing is, without taking too much time on this, mm. um, it's not as simple as rates go up. That means tightening. Rates go down. That means loosening. There are mm -hmm. a no, number of times through history where it's the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. The 1970s, by the way, mm -hmm. the 1970s, when it was, which was actual monetary inflation. What were interest rates doing? Going, going up. up. Yeah. So the Fed was raising rates and banks and business banks were creating credit because there were so many nominal opportunities in the economy. So it's not as simple as the Fed raises rates that's tightening, the Fed lowers rates that's loosening. But guess what? 
in, an, in, a, in a paradigm, I'm using that word in specifically, in a paradigm where you aren't actually a central bank and you want people to believe you are, we're attempting to, to influence behavior through communication. You need these very simple rules of thumb in order to create the effect that you cannot create yourself. Mm. So you can't actually tighten money because you don't do money. But if you get enough people in the economy to believe that when you raise a federal funds target, it's, it's equivalent to tightening, guess what happens? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. So right. we have to maintain this legitimacy of the Federal Reserve so that this psychological smoke and mirrors garbage has any chance of working. And so the Federal Reserve says, I'm going to hike rates because consumer prices are high, when it really should be saying, is there too much money or is there not too much money? They wouldn't know how to answer that question. So we have to play this other type of game. But going back to your original point here about the dollar shortage of the last mm -hmm. couple of years, that has nothing mm -hmm. to do with the Fed. And you can see it in the statistics. The dollar shortage arose well before the Fed even started hiking rates. And you can see it in the consumer price numbers. Consumer price numbers started uh, dipping down in June before the Fed even really got going. But because nobody really studies and pays attention to the monetary game and it makes all of these connections, we're left thinking it must have been the rate hikes. Sri Lanka collapsed because of a dollar shortage. Jay Powell did that because he says he did. And that's why, you know, getting back to Ronald Coase, skepticism. Look at the actual evidence. Don't take their word for it. Don't take my word for it. Do the work yourself and what you'll your see words, is... I mean, yeah, dude, your words are resonating a lot. I mean, for a, I'm kind of, I'm almost taken back to the time when I was, uh, you know, trying to build a business in Pakistan uh, and, you know, the challenges in acquiring dollars locally and then trying to transact cross-border. Uh, and, you know, today I see a number of interesting companies and isn't like, you know, why couldn't we do that? Well, our central bank wouldn't allow it. Our central bank wouldn't allow us to remit, you know, um, send money out because, um, well, they were really worried that they would, you know, just, I mean, even though there's a whole bunch of money that leaves through these unofficial channels called Havala. But I mean, you've raised such a really big, so many, um, you've raised a really big question here. So, in, so, so in your view, Fed changing rates does not impact the dollar shortage or dollar surplus in the world. So what would um, change the dollar shortage? Or like, I mean, your dollar shortage is something you talk about a lot. What could help improve the global dollar shortage in your view? Well, dollar shortage is because the monetary system is this global banking cartel. It's therefore mm -hmm. a function of the aggregate balance sheets of the individual banks that operate in those systems. And sadly, I mean, it, this is the way it needed to develop. These banks operate in, almost in lockstep. What right. one bank is doing, the, all the rest of them are going to follow along. That's just kind of the nature of the beast. And, you know, that was during the pre-crisis era that led us into disaster because as more and more banks got bigger and bigger and bigger, thinking there was no risk, everybody else followed along. Even the most conservative banks started buying up, you know, the subprime mortgage originators because that's what everybody else was doing. And so the issue about whether or not there's enough dollars or credit creation or money creation all comes back to the constraints on individual bank behavior. Yeah. And then it's replicated across uh, individuals, individual names. But yeah, I, you know, in very simple terms, we're talking about risk aversion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so if mm -hmm. banks believe that there's too much risk and they're not getting paid enough return, they'll cut back on their balance sheet activities, which has the effect of 
not necessarily making less credit available, but making it more expensive. The system becomes more inelastic, which then creates all sorts of problems. So money dealers, as well as credit creators, do less stuff. That's the issue there. So it's, it's about all of the factors that go into this risk aversion process and how that creates um, impacts on each individual balance sheet, which is this is the paradigm shift, big picture conversation that we really need to have about. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. You know, and, how yeah. do bank balance sheets actually work? How do they get put together? And it's not, you don't see bank reserves really <laughs> as a major issue here, nor quantitative easing. It's all about mathematics. It's all about perceptions. It's about volatility markets. Uh, you get into present value calculations. There's a lot of, of, of mathematics and things like that that gets involved, but it's really just risk aversion. And think about it. I mean, yeah. if you have, if you're, a, if you're a large dealer and you're at risk, you saw Bear Stearns, you saw Lehman Brothers, you saw AAG, you realize that the downside here is that you go out of business and you get wiped out. You can understand why banks would be incredibly risk averse over a lot less than they used to be, especially when you realize there is no actual central bank. Now, the Fed says we can come in and we can, we can buy a bunch of corporate bonds and save the corporate bond market. The bank says, well, that's great for the corporate bond market. I'm already out of business. Mm -hmm. That doesn't help me. That's the difference between lender of last resort and this market of dealer last resort nonsense. The banking system understands that liquidity risks are much higher, certainly than the public has been led to believe. And understanding that means they can become very risk averse very quickly. Mm. And so in the last couple of years, just to wrap it up here, mm. you're a bank, a liquidity provider. You just went through March 2020. Jay Powell's doing a victory parade and you're thinking, holy crap, we almost lost our ass here. Um you look at the economy in 2021 into 2022 and you think this isn't going to go well. There's a tremendous amount of risks here. Consumer prices are way up. Oil prices are going to create all sorts of economic hardship, hard, hardships, as well as all. We have an enormous collateral problem again. So you have all of these issues that made dealers very risk averse before 2022 ever even started. It had nothing to do with rate hikes. It had to do with risk aversion. And so dealers started cutting back on what was offered. And you started to see the symptoms almost immediately, which is why when March 2020, March 2022 came along, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, spiking oil prices, dealers went, oh, we're done. That's it. We're going to sit on the sidelines because this world just went nuclear. This world went totally in the wrong direction, which then is why you see Yield curve inversions, all sorts of inversions. You see the dollar spike, all of these symptoms of monetary shortage that are tied with risk aversion in the monetary system, even before Jay Powell ever did his first rate hike. I'm, I'm going to add one more thing, as in uh, this is the Pakistani perspective, um, because we, we've obviously, you know, growing, uh, spending so much time there. We, you know, one thing we noticed, and this is common across a lot of developing countries, that the banks in these developing countries, they're an extension of the state. And the reason is that the state in most of these countries is running a deficit and their currencies are also depreciating. So banks, often the government is the largest borrower. This yeah. is something that you see in, in Pakistan too, that any you pick up any bank's balance sheet in Pakistan, the largest um, uh, debtor uh, the, or the largest, uh, yeah, uh, you know, the maximum amount of lending is done to the government with nominal lending done to the private sector. And again, it's a risk return issue that like, you know, your sovereign won't default. 
So, and if your sovereign is letting you earn a spread between what you pay to your depositors, jolly good, right? And that interestingly also acts as, you know, it, it kind of, it, it, I think it kind of exasperates this dollar shortage because, and, I, and I, I'll share this thread with you. I wrote that I remember like, you know, in my, in my uh, days of, uh, of Tower Share in Pakistan, like banks had no incentive to help me build a regional company. Like if I wanted to send money to, let's say, buy towers in Kuwait, my banker had absolutely no incentive to do that. And his central banker obviously had no incentive for my dollars to leave. And so they were, they were, they were stuck. And that's something that I find like, I, I, you know, with this whole stable coin stuff and blockchain stuff, it's like, I mean, I, I, I see a glimmer of hope. I mean, I still get worried. I'm like, you know, I mean, you know, they could also clamp it down. Uh, but then, you know, the kind of arguments I want to make to people, particularly around Pakistan, is that, look, this is a much more transparent system. I mean, already a lot of money leaves the country through Havala. That's how a lot of terror finance happens. If you end up creating a much more transparent system, then at least your ability to zoom in on where terror finance is happening becomes better. And that's, well, that's kind of my, you know, long-term dream pitch that I'm hoping for. Because, yeah, you know, it's like unfettered access to dollars... You know, I mean, it's, you know, a lot of times like, you know, people, people like me migrate because, you know, it's like, you know, you're looking for better laws and you're looking for a better money that doesn't depreciate like 7% a year against the dollar. But it's, you know, it's a good example because it's a perfect example of how deflationary money becomes an impediment on the real economy, right? Because mm-hmm. dollars are scarce, they become too valuable for your banking system to then to allow you to use them as an effective medium of exchange, right. which then inhibits your ability to create a real economy project that would benefit the economy. That yeah. is the dirty, dirty little secret of deflation. It's not about really prices. It becomes an impediment in the machinery of exchange of the economy, right? Because we're, we're too focused on liquidity. We need to have those dollars available for our purposes. We're not allowing the mon- the money that's available to be a useful tool. As I said before, to redistribute money throughout their economy to those who have legitimate demand for money like yourself. And so that's the dollar shortage that I look at because it's not about oil prices. It's not about commodities. It's about, it's about all the hidden ways we don't see transactions that should happen, Mm. but never do. Mm. It's the stuff you can't put on a, you know, a data report because we don't know that this, this transaction never happened, but we can, we absolutely do feel that it's the absence. We feel the, the change in economic growth, getting back to our original discussion. We all feel that there's something wrong, but we can't put our finger on it mm-hmm. because it doesn't show up anywhere. It doesn't yeah. show up on an interest rate. It doesn't show up on a, on a data report. It doesn't show up on one of the government things. It, it, just, it just doesn't happen. But we know what it is and we know where, where, it's, where what, the, what the damage is being done, even if we can't, if most people can't identify the source of the problem. But that's the deflationary money inelasticity. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask you one last question. And uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. I have a ton of notes to like read up on, on everything you said. But, you know, this is a question that's, um, that I am asking myself and reading up on, right? Like this balance between rules and discretion. And it's something a lot of, I would say, stable currency projects are going through. You know, some are like, oh, we made it immutable and governance free too early we needed time to evolve and then the other one is well if you're not you know making it immutable and governance free then what's even the point of this uh, new frontier of finance then we're just recreating the whole thing 
and even in academia there's a very elaborate discussion on like drawing lines between you know rules and discretion and perhaps i think one common criticism that i hear that i also hear from you is that you know perhaps we have over discretion right now in in and when it comes to central banks there's there's pretty much like a i mean the guideline is a bit too broad right how does jeff snyder think about creating a balance between rules and discretion when it comes to central banks that's the age old question right it gets back into what we said before what is legitimate demand discretion is only helpful if it's if it's employed by those who have useful knowledge which is the reason why we have these central banks who claim to have all sorts of knowledge and, and tons of discretion but yet can't do anything with it because they don't actually have the knowledge or the power or the ability but they have total discretion to just make it up as they go which they do they totally just make it up as we go so rules versus discretion i think we have to start by realizing that we live in a dynamic world and so the downside of making a purely rules based monetary system is clear because the rules you design today are probably outdated tomorrow and then by next year they're completely outdated so rules based i mean even the idea of stability itself because money should be stable we i think we all agree on that but how do we define stability because there may be times when we want prices of certain things to fall because that means that something is being mass produced it's being it's being it's being helpful in the real economy and there are times when prices go up and that might be a good thing too so it and it might be not it might be different we look at prices today differently than how we look at those same prices 5 years from now so the downside of a rules based paradigm is you're starting from a static point in assuming that you know enough about the future that you can continue with the same number of rules the same same level of rules which is it's that's just arrogance and that's just unhelpful arrogance however yeah, yeah. the argument against that is in this discretionary i mean discretion is it's basically we're all human we make mistakes um as you know we were talking about before the marketplace is much better at at uh putting together information, filtering it, coming up with the right, uh, the right is the wrong word, but coming up with a, at least a decent and efficient way to analyze and use information, but the markets aren't perfect either. And our ability to interpret markets aren't, in per, aren't perfect either. Yeah. So discretion has all sorts of pitfalls associated with too. So again, I, I'm thinking, is there a happy medium here? where we have some rules that define maybe the general tolerances but yet have a little bit of discretion to be able to say well we looked at prices last year and this we thought that was good and it seemed to work but something has changed and maybe we need a little bit of flexibility to say this year we're going to define prices or stability or whatever the bogey might be just a bit differently because the world is not a static place but this is this is the question that we've been wrestling with since money first came about who who knows when way back <laughs> when before we even had writing and everything else is these are very difficult issues and there I don't think there is an answer there is only a set of answers which maybe some sets are better than others at different periods of time and I think the the, the place that we all need to start is with that level of humility yeah. that what we say today is already that's that's already gone. The world has already moved on. And so we have to keep in mind at least some, you know, the idea that the world is always changing. And so money needs to change too. Yeah. 
Yeah, love that, Jeff. My my two cents on that same question is that I think, um, and this is a lot of it comes from, you know, the growing up experience in Pakistan and having gone back and forth between a centrally controlled, I mean, well, we've kind of gone back and forth between, you know, we've, we've, we've seen nationalization, you know, we've, we've kind of gone the full way. We've seen authoritarianism, we've gone full left, we've gone full right, you know, we've, we've kind of seen it all. Uh, yeah, we're some middle. <laughs> <laughs> no, but one of the realizations in growing up there has been that, like, you know, is I don't know who kind of, uh, who was that uh, person, you know, he, like he, he went to, from I think Soviet Union went to the UK and he was like, you know, who decides how much bread to make? Uh, because he didn't see any lines. And he's like, well, no one decides, the market decides. And for me, that is something that's like stuck in my head that like we haven't figured out yet on how to let help the market make these very important decisions. Because like, you know, we've got these models and we're like, we don't know how to get the market to figure out this input. So we will just put in an input that feels right. But yeah. the re reality is like there needs to be and, I, and, and, and this is frankly where my mind is blown when I look at some of the more crazier um, crypto experiments, because it's like, I mean, I see like these, I see experiments that are like running very unique auctions to like do price discovery that you just cannot do in sort of this, I would say, non-programmable uh, money world. And and over there, I see this glimpse. I'm like, oh man, maybe, maybe this is this is where you know, a, a, like some very key inputs to uh, that we've kind of grown to depend on. Maybe you know, the market can 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 hopefully start figuring out what these are. But um, such an amazing discussion, Jeff. Thank you so much. Uh, can't uh, you know? We're we're all very grateful uh, for your time and for the amazing videos you produce every 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 day that you that you shared uh but yes um thank you and um i wish you a lovely weekend anytime you find yourself in san francisco bay area please look me up i i, I feel like uh there's there's so much more we have to talk about yeah let's continue this discussion and, and you know i, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to come in and talk to you as your first guest too Really honored about that. So oh, honor, my honor, pleasure. Honor. Totally my pleasure. Honors all mine. We're going to do this every week. And uh, that's the goal. We want to dig this money system rabbit hole. And, uh, you know, as you said, like, these are the discussions worth having. Thank you, Jeff. Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Oh, you too. Take care now.